Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And as you are finding Romans chapter 5, let me just mention, if you're here for the first time um, today, you're visiting, you're, you're boarding a train that left a station about six months ago, seven months ago, and this journey through Romans, and you're just getting on here midway through Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, and uh, it may take a little bit of time for you to get your bearings, but our custom is just to work through books of the Bible, and we're working through Romans chapter 5, which is, is just an incredibly important chapter. And I, I know I say that a lot, and it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. And so every time I say, this text is really, I know you guys kind of roll your eyes, but you go ahead and roll your eyes, and I'll do it again. Really, seriously, this text is absolutely paramount in having a biblical understanding of the gospel and what it means to be human and the need for grace in the gospel. We are about to, as we dive into these verses, and Lord willing, we do this every Sunday, but, but in particular, the truth that I think is contained in these verses will enter us into a beautiful and mysterious world of the Bible. It's not like our world. It reveals to us a God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are are higher than our thoughts, and who is not like us. And as a result, we will have a choice to make as we encounter what I think this text says about humanity this morning. And the choice that we will have to make is, will we humble ourselves to God and His Word, or will we resist it and refuse to submit to it. My, my prayer is that we will humble ourselves, that we will see this truth, and that that will drive us not away from God, but to God, pleading for His mercy and His grace. So my plan is to just work through these three verses. It's going to be a little bit more doctrinal today. I, I, I hope that every Sunday is a kind of mix of doctrine and and application, but it's going to be a little bit more doctrinal as we consider what I think is one of the more important doctrines in the whole Bible, this doctrine of the nature of humanity, that we have inherited a sin nature from our first parents, and that has incredible implications for us. And we're going to really settle down in these first three verses, which is midway through the whole argument of verses 12 through 21. So verses 12 through 21 start a new section in this chapter, but it's essential that we lay this foundation. So with all that as an intro, let me, let me pray and let me read the text and pray, and then we're going to work our way through it. And from this text, I think we have three truths that I want us to see. And after I preach, praise God, we're going to see a young lady from this church be baptized and publicly proclaim her faith in Jesus, which is always a great joy. We'll hear her testimony read. Um, so let me pray. Let me read and pray, and we'll dive into it. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us work through this and understand what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through Paul. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that we can sing to you such beautiful, gospel-rich songs. Thank you that we can read Scripture and teach children the Bible and sing together and pray and respond to your good news together in this comfortable place and relative security. We realize that many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have the comforts that we do this morning, and we do not want to be lulled to sleep by them, but we want these things to spur us on into gratefulness and worship and 
I think of Jesus' words where he says that to whom much is given, much is required. May we lean forward into the truth of your word and we, may we not merely listen for ourselves today and hear for ourselves, but we want to we be made more like Jesus so that we can be a better display of a more global Christian, somebody who cares about the purposes of God all across the world. We want to be transformed into Christ-likeness this morning as your people. And Lord, for my friends that are here this morning that don't know Jesus, would you, by your grace, would you do what only you can do and would you take their dead heart and make it alive for your glory and their joy? And would you show us the truth of your word this morning? I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Let me read verse 12 again, which I think is one of the most central and important verses in all of Romans, and it's a, it's a prism. It's a, it's a, it opens us up into a biblical worldview of mankind, and then from verse 12, we're going to look at really three truths that I think flow from just verse 12 and that are reinforced by verses 13 and 14. So Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. He's speaking of Adam, our first father, Adam and Eve, this first couple. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, from this text, I think there are three very important truths. Truth number one is this, and these are all, I think, just very self-evident. The first is this. Sin came into the world through Adam. Now, it's important for us to understand that sin existed, I think, before Adam. We, we see the, the angelic rebellion. We see Lucifer and Satan, really one and the same, rebelling against God even before before the creation of Adam and Eve, but as far as entrance into the human race, at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that everything's going well. Creation is not just good, but it's very good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see it take a drastic downward turn where Adam and Eve willfully rebel against God and disobey His direct verbal command to not eat the one particular fruit of one particular tree. And through Adam and his disobedience, and he is a kind of head representing all of humanity. So even though Eve may have committed the sin, it was really Adam's lack of leadership. And that's a, a great, a great uh, point for us just as men, that, that God holds men accountable. It's not that men are more important than women or husbands are more important than wives, but men, we have the the task, the mantle of leadership, and I could spin off on that for a long time, but I won't. But the point is, is that God, seeing Adam as the representative of humanity and of his wife, sins, and through Adam comes sin. It enters the world. It's the portal. It's the bridge. Adam, through his disobedience, builds the bridge through which sin enters the world. Now, one just little important point here, which we won't elaborate on, which is really, really important when you're looking at the whole Bible, is that it's important for us to under, understand that Paul, as he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Romans, sees Adam as being a real historical figure. So when Paul is thinking about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the creation of humanity, and in particular the creation of Adam and Eve, he is basing his argument, which we're going to work through these next couple weeks in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. He is basing his argument on this real man, Adam, through whom sin enters the world, and this real man, Jesus, through whom redemption enters the world. And so, he sees Adam as a real historical figure. I point that out because the doctrine of creation is being challenged today. The creation of humanity is being challenged today even by people who would consider themselves faithful conservative Christians. And they would say, well, thinking about creation and 
the time of creation, whether the earth is just thousands of years old or whether the earth is millions or billions of years old. There can be debates that are had on that. Some people are starting to fudge on Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as being a kind of analogy, merely an analogy for humanity, but not speaking of literal people. If that's the case, that that dismantles Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5. He perceives Adam as being a real man, one guy through whom sin comes, not evolving from some other species, and eventually it develops one man through whom sin comes. Now that's, that's, that's way more important than I'm giving it time to. We'll get into it some other time, but just, just know that that is, I think, very, very true and very, very important. But let's think, just consider before we move on, think deeply about just this notion of sin, this idea of sin. It's just this one of these words that, that we, we, we hear all of our lives, but we, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about what it actually is biblically. It is not, sin is not merely a minimized, less than ideal human existence. Sin, I think, at its core is disobedience to God and his revealed will. And Adam is disobeying God. It's preferring. It's idolatry. It's, it's valuing ourselves over God. It's the soul turned in on itself. It's disobedience against our creator God. And the Bible, when it speaks about sin, often refers to sin in relationship to God. It's a kind of lawlessness. Against God, this is what the Apostle John writes at the end of John. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's a kind of disregard for God's order and sufficiency. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the prophet speaking of this nature that exists in all of us, the sin that exists in all of us, says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So through Adam comes sin, and we inherit this sin nature. More on that in a moment, but we inherit this sin nature, and sin has now spread. It's spread to all of humanity. Every culture, every person is tainted by it. There is no corner, no nook and cranny of humanity that is unaffected by this lawlessness, this, this disobedience, this sin. G.K. Chesterton, the great writer back in the, uh, a century or so ago, said that the doctrine of original sin, meaning Adam and his sin, then spreading to all of, all of his progeny, which is us, that the doctrine of original sin is the most empirically verifiable of all human doctrines. That's why I know we have a lot of people in this city and maybe even in this church who work for banks like Columbus Bank and Trust or Synovus. The reason that you have a job is because the doctrine of... That's why we need banks. Because if we didn't have banks, we would steal each other's stuff. We, the world has fallen. Just consider human history. I was reading a commentator on this passage, and he was, he was delineating all of the major dictators of human history and how many thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people that they killed. Some of them, even people from their own country, like Stalin or, or, or Pol Pot or Idi Amin or Hitler or, or Saddam Hussein. Just the, the carnage of these global sort of sins that we see. Human history is littered with evidence of sin. And lawlessness, just, just even consider the world today, the sin and the lawlessness and the anger and the frustration. Just even a, a few days ago, I, I, I was, Jennifer and I were kind of consumed with our son leaving, and so we, we weren't watching the news much, but I just caught a little glimpse of 
of this terrible tragedy in Florida where, where several law enforcement officers were shot in separate, separate locations. That's a kind, of, a kind of picture of human sinfulness and lawlessness that, that people are taking the lives of those. And by the way, that just reminded me to think about how difficult it is in our culture to be a police officer. We need to pray for our police officers, our law enforcement officers. How, how challenging is that? But that's a kind of picture of anti-law, the lawlessness of all of humanity. And that's what sin is. Now, we, we may be, and I don't think this is embedded in the text here, but I think it's an implication of it, and I want us to take just a moment to consider it, because I don't think any of us would, I don't think there are many people in here that would, would deny the fact that the world and that humanity, in fact, every individual person is tainted with sin, but we may, we may, we may kind of wonder why God would allow sin to even come into the world in the first place. Now, there are lots of challenging concepts in the Bible. There, there's this, this truth of the Trinity. God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a difficult concept. The, the concept of it, the incarnation of Christ, that he is fully God and he became fully man. That, that's a difficult thing to reconcile in our minds. The, the concept of God's sovereignty and salvation, the concept of what the words predestination and election mean, these are difficult things to think about and to consider. But I, I would submit that there is no more challenging truth in the Bible than the challenging truth of God's relationship and sovereignty over sin and evil. And what we have here is we have this portrait of God biblically that he is completely sovereign over all things. We read recently a week or two ago from Isaiah 46 that says that God knows the end from the beginning. Everything that happens, happens according to his purpose and sovereign will. But yet in Romans 5 verse 12, we see that sin came into the world through one man. And so consider what's happening here is God has created a world that he knew, in fact, intended for in some mysterious way where he is not culpable for sin, but yet he is in control over it, that he has created a world that sin has happened, and in fact, it's all part of his great, grand, sovereign, mysterious plan. And I think that word mysterious is helpful, and I think we need to be able to embrace it. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says. And this is, I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about difficult things in the Bible, so we should be careful not to throw this verse out too quickly. But I do think it applies here. This is what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. I think what's happening there is Moses is writing Deuteronomy as he's saying, look, there are some things that are just, we will not know the answer to on this side of eternity. In fact, even after eternity, we, th there's just secret things that we can't fully understand. And I'm actually comforted by that because if God could be completely described and understood, it would sort of put him on our level, right? But there are just things, there are purposes. That, that how can God be good and yet let, in fact, ordain, allow, whatever word or verb you want to use there, permit, how can God be good and allow sin to come into the world knowing the cascading tragedy that it would cause. What were God's purposes in allowing this sin to come into the world? Well, we get a little, a little, a little glimpse of it, I think, it, in Romans chapter 9. Let me just throw this out there and rattle your cage and not really develop it fully, completely unsatisfy you, and then we'll get back to it eventually when we get to Romans 9. <laughs> But I, I think this is a little picture of God's purposes in this. And it's, it's, this is, I am about to read a verse that is radically God-centered. Radically God-centered. This is a paradigm-shifting verse. This is not sweet little devotionals from Lifeway that smell like perfume and have like bedazzled stuff all over them, right? This, you won't find this in those sort of devotionals. This is, this is, 
This is a God-centered, human-humbling verse. In fact, the whole chapter of Romans 9 is. And Paul says, what if God, speaking about God's sovereignty over salvation and sin and human rebellion, he says, why would God even allow this? Is this even fair? If God knew, how can he judge? All this kind of stuff. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I think that verse is saying clearly that God is over all of human history. Evil has not snuck up on him. He has planned for it. And he has decided to allow it so that he would save a great multitude of people out of that sin and evil so as to magnify in a greater way his glory and mercy that could not have been magnified were it not for him allowing for the fall. Okay, now I want to share with you something that has really encouraged me and I think you can handle it. And right now you're going to be tempted to say, oh, I can't track with this. Yes, you can, okay? You can track with this. And I think you need to track with this because I think it will help you see the world rightly. Okay, years ago, like back in the 300s, there was this great church father named Augustine who developed this idea of the fourfold states or the four states of mankind. And then it was adapted in the, in the 1600s by a Puritan named Thomas Boston. And I'm going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to work through it quickly. And I want you to see, I want you to just see the beauty of God's redemption here. It's the human, human nature in its fourfold state. And, and these great Christian thinkers in the past said that humanity has four states. The first is pre-fall. That's Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what is the state? What's the condition of pre-fall man, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2? They are able to sin, and they're able to not sin. Now, why would God give them that kind of freedom? I don't know. Of course, we know that God knew that they would fall, and he's planned for redemption. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. Remember, we talked about that. But God, in his mysterious secret providence for the maximum display of his glory, has created mankind in this state where he is able to not sin, but he's able to sin. And in fact, our first parents, Adam and Eve, do sin. And that sin ushers humanity into the second state of mankind, which is post-fall, which is where all of humanity is naturally and where every one of us was naturally before God regenerated our hearts. And this post-fall state of mankind is is that we are able to sin. We all know that, right? We, We do that often. But Now we are unable to not sin. In other words, our hearts now, and we're going to get into this when we look at the next truth, is that sin has caused death, and now our hearts are unable to do anything that would make ourselves right with God. It's not that we're not able to do good things or that God can use unbelievers to bring about his will or to even do good things that would bless humanity, but it means that We are unable in our post-fall, pre-conversion state, we are unable to stop ourselves from ultimately sinning. We are unable to save ourselves. We're unable to stop this nature that has now diseased our hearts. And that's where all of humanity exists and resides. And where all of us, before we were Christians, reside. But God in his mercy has sent his son, which then causes many people to be reborn, and that's the third state. For those who are Christians, we are able to sin still, because Christians still sin. But now, because the Holy Spirit lives within us, we are able now to not sin. We're able to fight sin. We're able to obey God. Not perfectly in this life, but we are able to obey God. That's the, the process of sanctification. And we await, for those of us that are Christians, the fourth and final state of mankind, 
which is the glorified state, which is only for those that are trusting in Christ. And what is the glorified state of mankind? That we are able to not sin, praise God, but it gets even better. We are now in eternity with Christ forever, unable to sin anymore. <laughs> and so, oh, this is, I just got a shadow box. This is what the theologians who spoke Latin and wrote in Latin called, this Latin phrase, they, they called this Felix Copa, which is a Latin phrase, Felix, like Felix the cat, that cartoon that you grew up on. And those of you that speak Spanish or Italian or Portuguese know that Felix, Feliz, Feliz Navidad, Happy, Merry Christmas. Felix is a Latin word that means happy. And culpa is a Latin word from which we get the English word culpability or guilt or fall. And the theologians determined that God has ordained all things in such a way that it is a Felix culpa, a happy fall. In other words, mankind is happier now than he would have been were it not for the fall. Because why? Because look at it. The fourth and final state of mankind, at least those that are in Christ, is better than the first. Do you see that? We will be better off than Adam and Eve because we will not be able to rebel against God in that new garden, that new Jerusalem. I, I don't know whether that blessed you or not, but I, that every time I think about that, I long for that day. And that gives me, then let's get back into our text, that gives me a... It doesn't answer all my questions. Of course it doesn't. <laughs> because there's so much pain even in this room right now. And, 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 and like just even just moments ago, I was just crying with a sister over some things that were said to her. And it just, it hurts, man. It hurts. It hurts. But when I get a picture of God's purposes in all things and how he will use it in some way to magnify his glory and deepen our joy, I can, I can fight sin and endure sin in the hope of that final state. So sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Then what does the second part of verse 12 say? It says that death came through sin. So that leads us to our second truth. The consequence of sin, the consequence of our lawlessness, the consequence of any disobedience to God is death. It's spiritual death. Now this death is ultimately, it's not just merely physical, but ultimately it is spiritual. All human beings will, they haven't existed forever, but they will live forever. And so death, when the Bible speaks of it in this sense, is ultimately separation from God and total inability to reconcile oneself to God. The Bible will often speak of the two types of humanity. Really, there are only two types of people in this world, right? And I know that you guys are waiting for me to do my Mexican food thing. Now, I won't do that because every time I do my little Mexican food thing, how there are, well, I'm going to do it right now anyway. There are only... I'm not an expert on many things, but growing up about a block from Mexico, I consider myself an expert on Mexican food. And there are really, when you boil it, when it boils down, there are only two types of, two types of Mexican food. Everything is basically a tortilla with beef or chicken. What's an enchilada? It's a tortilla with beef or chicken. You know what a taco is? It's a tortilla with beef or chicken. You know what a burrito is? It's a tortilla with beef or chicken. You know what a flauta is? It's a tortilla with beef or chicken. <laughs> and the Bible gives us this picture of humanity that there are really only two types of people. Those that are in Christ and out of Christ. Those that are still in their sin and dead and those that are alive. 
those that are naturally in sin and those that are spiritually made alive. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, a consequence of this sin that has caused death. The natural person, meaning the person who's still in sin, still dead spiritually, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is, this is so important, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So do you see the consequences of sin? It hasn't just neutralized us. It has wrecked us. It has rendered us unable. That's all mankind. That has huge implications for sharing the gospel. It has huge implications for the way we preach. It has huge implications for evangelism. It has huge implications for the nature of salvation. Salvation is not mere self-improvement. It is a miracle of God where God takes a dead person and by his grace and his grace alone makes them alive. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, and we'll get to this in, in the coming weeks and months. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And what does Paul mean by those who live according to the flesh. He's not talking about a particular group of sinners who are really bad. He's talking about all of humanity in its natural state. Pre-conversion man. Unsaved man. But those who live according to the Spirit, meaning Christians, not just a, a class of really spiritual Christians, but Christians who have the Spirit living in them, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Again, not perfectly in this life, but they do. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Listen to verse 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What has sin done? It's brought death. What has spiritual death produced in us? Total inability. That's where we are prior to Christ. That's what the Bible's saying. Let's bring in some help from church history. And I'm not saying that this as if scripture is not enough. But listen to what J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop in the 1800s, contemporary of one Charles Haddon Spurgeon, they were friends, and they both had awesome beards. <laughs> J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, which is a classic, which I, I commend to you very highly, says this about the nature of sin that exists in all people. Brace yourselves, mamas. The fairest babe that has entered life this year and become the sunbeam of a family is not, as its mother perhaps fondly calls it, a little angel or a little innocent, but a little sinner. <laughs> Alas, as it lies smiling and crowing in its cradle, that little creature carries in its heart's heart the seed of every kind of wickedness. Only watch it carefully. As it grows in stature and its mind develops, and you will soon detect in it an incessant tendency to that which is bad. And a backwardness, every parent right now saying amen, and a backwardness to that which is good. You will see in it the buds and germs of deceit. Evil temper, selfishness, self-will, obstinacy, greediness, envy, jealousy, passion, which, if indulged and let alone, will shoot up with painful rapidity. Who taught the child these things? Where did he learn them? The Bible alone can answer these questions. Of all the foolish things that parents can say about their children, there is none worse than the common saying, my son has a good heart at the bottom. He is not what he ought to be, but he has fallen into bad hands. The truth, unhappily, is diametrically the other way. The first cause of all sin lies in the natural corruption of the boy's own heart. Friends, that's not just true of terrorists in the Middle East, but it's true 
of every human being. Now, let me say this. I do think that we need to realize that morality is a real thing, right? Uh, And when we're looking at the consequences of human sin, it's better to not actually be wicked, right? I mean, I remember a couple years ago when Osama bin Laden was um, assassinated by SEAL Team 6, and he was a wicked and evil man who brought much pain and destruction on our world. And I think it was a good thing that he met his ultimate earthly judgment, and of course he would instantly ushered into the kingdom of or into, into the presence of God where he would meet his eternal judgment. And I think it's a good thing that a man like that is dead now. And I say that with, with a lot of humility. I, I think that's a good thing. But I can remember Christians during that time when there were people some sort of celebrating the death of Osama bin Laden, and I'm not getting into that. There were people that said, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't even rejoice that this wicked man has been died because that, 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 we're, we're all wicked too. And although that's true, I, 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 I do think that there is a certain kind of morality. I mean, it's, it's, Osama bin Laden is a wicked, wicked man who in a human sense is far more wicked than most of us. And so when we, when we flatten the moral universe as if human morality doesn't matter at all, I don't, I don't think we make much sense to an onlooking world. It is a good thing that sin is punished, even in an unregenerate world, by governments. But the point is, is that even us, who on a sort of human level are not as wicked as we could possibly be, like an Osama bin Laden or some terrible dictator or some evil person, even us, although we're not that bad on a horizontal sense, even us, in our relatively minuscule sin compared to the worst human being, even us stand condemned. Why? Because we are not being judged horizontally. Osama bin Laden or Hitler or the worst person that's ever lived will not suffer eternal separation from God because they were one of the worst humans who ever lived. They will suffer eternal separation from God because they sinned lawlessly against God and their sins were not covered by Christ. And that is true of us, whether we have committed wanton wickedness or whether we've sinned merely in our heart and self-righteousness. That's why even moral people who are outside of Christ actually aren't moral at all, but stand rightly condemned before a holy God. Ryle goes on to say this. He says, dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. And we can see where these wicked people really need salvation and need to be saved. But not, 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 not the mailman who's a pretty good guy who doesn't believe in God. He seems to be a decent guy. Surely there's kind of a back door for him. No. If a man does not realize the dangerous dangerous nature of his soul's disease, which has infected all of humanity, you cannot wonder if he's content with false or imperfect remedies. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Friends, that's why you should not go to a church that preaches tiddlywink self-help sermons that tickle your ears trying to help you improve yourself because your problem isn't that you need self-improvement. It's that your heart was dead and you needed to be made alive by God. It means that even good moral southern church-going folks will be judged just like the worst human being that has ever lived if they are outside of Christ, if they are trusting in anything other than the finished work of Jesus. And that's why it's so serious that we understand the implications of how all humanity is not just minimized. There's not basically decent people than really wicked people and Christians. There is only two types of people, those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ, those that have been made alive and those that are still dead. And this, this just 
this, this affects everything. It, this should inform how we see the world around us. We shouldn't expect the world to obey. We shouldn't expect at the bottom of the world's morality to be anything really virtuous because ultimately at the bottom of the world's morality is a kind of self-worship and idolatry. It should inform everything about how we look at the world. The world is lost and it needs Jesus. And that's its only hope. And I end with this, the last point there, number three. All humanity has sinned and was in Adam. Now this is where it gets a little tricky. Look at the second half of verse 12. It says, And so death, let me just read verse 12 again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now this phrase, because all sinned, has been the source of much discussion in the history of the church. How can Paul say, that we all sinned because we weren't there. It's not just, and they all eventually will sin when they become alive, when, they, when they're born, but they actually all, the implication of Paul's language here is that we were with Adam. We were in Adam. We were represented by Adam. And that's Paul's point. It's not merely that we have imitated Adam. It's that we are in Adam, Adam's sin in the garden and its consequences were imputed to us. We are in him. Adam was our head, our representative. He represented us. We were in him and we all sinned with him in some mysterious way that we can't, again, we're entering the mysterious and beautiful world of the Bible here. In some way, God saw Adam's sin as being representative of all humanity that would follow from him. And so in him, we all sinned with Adam even before we were born. I'm sure some of us are familiar with that African-American spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? The answer to that question biblically is, Yes, we were there. We were with Adam. Now let's confess, this is foreign to us as Westerners because we believe in rugged individualism and our rugged individualism often obscures our ability to understand life as the Bible portrays it and we might be tempted at this point to shout, that's not fair. <laughs> Let's just, I just want to say, if that's what's rising up in your heart, I want to tell you I understand it. That's not fair. Two responses to that's not fair. One is, okay, if you would have done any different than Adam, do you have any empirical evidence in your life that you've done any differently than Adam? <laughs> okay, right now, no, go, go ahead, stand up, we'll get you a mic. And no, right? We, 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 we not only would do the same, we have done the same. I think the clear indication is, is that we're born. We, we have our, our first father's nature. And the second response to that is that if we think it's unfair that Adam's sin would be accounted to us even though we didn't do anything, then we also have to raise the same objection that we'll get to next week when we read the rest of the chapter that says that Jesus' righteousness is accounted to us even though we didn't do anything. Amen. Do you see, that's the argument of Romans 5, 12 through 21. There are only two types of people, those who are in Adam, whose sin, Adam's sin, they all participated in, and his sin was accounted to them, even though they didn't do anything, as we might object, and those that are in Christ, who are in Christ, whose righteousness and obedience was counted to them, even though they didn't do anything. That's Paul's argument. 
So if it's not fair that we got sin nature, then it's not fair that we would get Christ's nature either. Amen. And that's, that's Paul's argument. He ends by just reinforcing his argument with Romans 13 and 5, 13 and 14. What, what does it say there? He says, for sin, this is kind of confusing. Let me just tidy it up for you and then we'll end. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So what's going on here? What are these two verses saying? It can be a little confusing on the surface. Paul is speaking about a time before the law was given through Moses in Exodus. And he's speaking about a time from the creation of Adam up until that point where Moses came and the law came through him. And he's saying that sin was in the world before the law was given through Moses. But the second half of verse 13, he says that sin is not counted where there is no law. And so we might be tempted to think that Paul may be saying that those who sin before the law came aren't accountable for their sin in some way. But the next verse shows us that that can't be the truth because in verse 14 he says, yet death reigned from Adam, and Mo from Adam to Moses. So the consequences for sin before the law came is still in place. People died. So if they weren't accountable for their sin because there was no law, how can they also suffer the consequences? The point is, is that we still are accountable for our sins. I think the point that Paul is making is that the sin of humanity before God gave his law, which explicitly delineated and defined sin, is, is different from Adam's transgression and then people after the law who directly disobeyed God. And I think that's just a warning to us that those of us who have the knowledge of God's way and deliberately walk away from him, there, there's, a, there's a kind of weighty soberness to that. But the point is, is that Paul, I think, is just underscoring the fact that we are sinners not because the law came at Moses and told us we were sinners, but we have been sinners by nature from the beginning, from Adam, and we were dying even before the law turned on the light and told us that we were dying. In other words, we are sinners by nature, not because the law tells us. That's where we are. And then, and we're just going to give us a little foreshadowing of the next few verses that we'll get into next week. He says, it's not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And that's just what we said. Adam is a kind of representative of humanity. And in that way, he was a kind of picture, a type of Christ who would come and be a representative of a new humanity. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, meaning those whom he has made alive, for Christians, for our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we inherit by our nature, a sin nature, through our first father, Adam, and those whom God has saved, we inherit righteousness in Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. i got to creep into next week's verse, and I'll read it, and then we'll be done. Listen to this good news. Romans 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Meaning, if because Adam messed it all up for all of us and we were mysteriously in him and now we rightly receive the death and the consequence of his trespass and sin, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Do you see the system that Paul is laying out for us? He's saying that we're all born in Adam. And although we want to classify ourselves as rich and poor, 
good-looking, not so good-looking, black and white, American, European, Asian, African. We want all these little silly little temporary classifications to define us. They don't define us. We are all, we're, we are all brothers and sisters because we are all infected with the same DNA. And it's the DNA of inherited sin that in some way we were in Adam when he rebelled and it all came to us. We all stand level in our need at the foot of the cross, unable to do anything on our own, completely dependent on God and his mercy. That's where we all start. And God in his mercy, if you're a Christian, has made you alive and he has caused the perfect humanity, the obedient humanity, the law-abiding humanity, humanity of Jesus, the righteousness of the eternal Son of God to be yours because of what Jesus has done. Friends, how does God make that real in your life? Not because you figured it out, because he takes a dead heart and makes it alive. Do you hear that right now? Did you come into this room not believing in Jesus, not trusting, not sure if you were trusting in Christ? Are you hearing that right now? I think that's evidence that God is taking your dead heart and he's making it alive. You don't need to scurry off into 10 steps on how to have a better Tuesday. You need to turn from yourself and behold our God, as we sang earlier, and receive the free gift of righteousness that is yours in Christ Jesus and Christ alone. And if you're already a Christian, you need to marvel at the wonder of God's saving work in your life. Because death reigned and now life reigns. And that's why you exist. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these words of our dear sister now be baptized, this, as she, her testimony is read, and she goes down into the water and up out of the, the water her testimony is our testimony. We once were dead, but now we are alive if we're trusting in you. You have made us alive. For any of my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, would you show them the complete futility of their predicament and their complete dependence on your grace to make them alive, to put them in Christ so that they too might live for you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.